newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project is a half hour of commentary, analysis, and sometimes even insight into the important media issues of the week. We are glad to be with you here. My name is Rex Smith, and I'm your host here with Dr. Alan Shartok, with Rosemary Armeo, and with Judy Patrick. We are the veteran journalists here. Dr. Shartok, you're doing all right here? Well, yes. Good. I'm trying my best to do my best. Okay. Well, let's talk about positive news then. Let's kick this off by talking about the fact that there are critics saying that the coverage of the coronavirus, which has been the dominant topic of news coverage for lo these many months now, that there is a failure on the part of journalists to acknowledge that there is good news out there, that we are focusing on the Delta variant and other bad news and not doing enough to say, you know, things are getting better. You feel that that's a fair analysis from your reading of the media, Dr. Shartok? I think the media has a real role to play here in protecting all of our lives. And I think it has an editorial role saying everybody has to get the jab. And if you don't, you are, this is the editorial page now. You're basically a bad person. And, you know, you're putting everybody else at risk. And I think the fact that there are still so many people who don't have the vaccine and haven't taken it, is something that the newspapers have every obligation to report. I'm very disappointed with what's happening, and I think in this case, and I've been a critic of the newspapers over the years, I think in this case, the newspapers are doing the right why thing. Why are we talking about the newspapers? That's not how most people get their news. I don't know why. I just thought I'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Rosemary, you're a former newspaper, newspaper person. Yeah. yeah. They're dead so, now. What do you think? Um, you know, I think that we in the business bemoan the fact that we can't predict that things are going to happen. We don't do a really good job on that. But what we do do a good job is when something bad happens, we look at the big picture. If I can use another example than coronavirus right now, Surfside collapse. No one predicted that. And yet now there's wonderful reporting going on about condo boards, the growth in condos, the fact that infrastructure includes condos and they're just like falling apart all over the country. And there's no way with the governance of condo boards to actually take care of that. That's a great and important story. It's the same with coronavirus. It struck. We sort of predicted it, not very well, not very loudly. And now we're looking at it. What does this mean? What about the next time a disease strikes? What about the fact that government cannot seem to bribe or mandate people to get shots? That is something we should be looking at. All of the bad things, what you call bad things, are issues that we as a society have to take up now before it's too late. Well, shouldn't we be able to, to zoom out and give people the big picture? And the big picture in this country is good, isn't it? 
the view from 30,000 feet is good, but there's only so often you can write the good news story about, you know, the stores reopening, the concerts happening again. There's plenty of opportunities to do some interesting local stories about this. Go into a crowd and ask people, have you been vaccinated? Why aren't you wearing a mask? And get those discussions going. But I also think this focus on the Delta variant of the virus is an important one because it can reach the unvaccinated and encourage them to get vaccinated. And that's something that needs to happen. Yeah, that's true. You know, the fact that things are fine is really never a story. You know, here's a, another way to look at it, the spate of gun violence. Spate is probably an understatement given the consequence. We are in the United States now in the midst of a tragic upswing in violence across the country. And we are covering it individually. We are covering the individual incidents And we take a step back and write about what's going on, but how do you really give people a sense that these individual pieces are part of a bigger whole? How do you get that across to people that there needs to be a global solution, in effect? Well, I think to some degree it is being done, Rex. I mean, you know, I'm a purveyor of television and radio and newspapers, (laughs) (laughs) and I get the feeling that the word is out that there's violence all over America, particularly in our major cities. I'm certainly getting that. So I suspect the the media is doing something right. You never get credit for doing something right. As soon as the media all gangs up and says, do something, there's violence, or do something, climate change, then you get critics saying there's a campaign. It's the united liberal media agenda they're going after something. So I agree with you. I do think it's hard to discuss global problems needing global coordinated action in the media. I say screw the critics. Who cares about what the critics are saying? If you're doing it right, then that's all you need. You don't need more than that. Well, except the critics are your consumers, and if you don't have consumers, you don't have a product. It, I'm not just talking about the so economics sales, of it. Yeah. No. Well, and no. also politicians, Rex. The, the well, critics are politicians who, who stop your ability to get information. So the critics do have to be taken seriously. I just don't know what the solution is. Well, we, we don't really agree on that. I'm a believer that... There are critics and there are critics. You know, I mean, if the New York Times is criticizing you, that's one thing. If Schlermy on the corner is criticizing you, who cares? <laughs> but the group of Schlermies, is that how you pronounce his yeah, name? Schlermy. Or is it her name? I don't know. It's their pronouns. Difficult. Oh. <laughs> oh, we got to talk about that sometime. Oh, what the man. heck to do with pronouns? It is really oh. a problem. Well, while we're at it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, it is really hard to use there, which is a plural pronoun. Referring to a singular person. To referring to a singular person. What verb person. do you use? Well, you should say they is going, and but right. that doesn't sound right either. No. Although it's worse for the poor people who speak Romance languages, where every noun has is been, gendered. Been. Do you understand what I'm saying there, Ellen? Not really, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and we could just get back to gun violence for just a second. <laughs> so if there are 10 gun-related incidents in a town or a city within a month, you have to wonder, you know, if you take a broad look at it, what does it help? How does it illuminate what's happening and help resolve the problem? And in many cases, taking a broad look does help. But for the people who live in that city where there have been 10 gun-related deaths, they want to know what's happening in their little part of the world. And I'd also like to make the point, data is often very hard to get. The feds keep track of this, but usually it's delayed a year or two. So you're really not getting good, hard data about exactly what's happening, mm-hmm. where the gun-related incidents are happening. Sometimes you get a nonprofit institution that will try to collate this based on local newspaper reporting, mm-hmm. which is where you get this kind of you data. Get them, yeah. yeah, but there's not really solid information yet. 
But I have to say, Judy, you are filled with shoulds, to which I usually say should, schmud, you know. That, and you are full of should, schmuds, yeah. for the record. <laughs> that, so, but the point I'm trying to make here, trying to get across here, Judy, is that, you know, you are always discussing what the media ought to be doing from a philosophical basis. In other words, this is good because it helps mankind or whatever, womankind or whatever. And, you know, I don't think that's why you as an editor or Rex as an editor or Rosemary as an editor exclusively chose stories. I think you chose stories because you thought that those stories were going to excite a lot of people and not buy a paper. I know I always get hell for that. At least excite them about reading the paper. Well, it's part of the obligation of a journalist to oh, get people to pay again. attention to the news. Oh, yeah. If you don't have an audience, you don't exist. And if you don't make your content accessible to people in a way that they can digest it or useful, then you're not fulfilling your ethical responsibility. You know, right? Rex, when you start talking about ethics, you give me agita. You know, the idea that my stomach just reacts to that not so well. I'm sorry. I don't think you're digestive. sorry a bit because you <laughs> continually do it. You know, I would love at one point to just come up with a list of story headlines that would attract a great number of readers that would be irresponsible to write. Because as an editor, I could do it every day. But those are stories we don't do, the clickbait kind of stories. Re- uh, you write we about. do do them. Every one of those headlines would have Kardashian in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible to do it. You can do it on a local level, but responsible people don't. You tend to do stories that you think the public needs to know, that they want to know, that reflects the community, but there are a lot of stories that we passed on that would have gotten a lot of interest or a lot of clicks. Do you think there's a big difference between need to know and, you know, want to know? Uh, Huge difference. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, you have to give people a bit. I'm, I'm sorry, the old analogy is asparagus and ice cream. We know that asparagus is good for us or broccoli, choose your vegetable, sure. but people really like ice cream. And so we really need in a news organization to have a balanced diet. You know, that's why we... Uh, okay, I've heard this for years. Yeah. And I, I, wanted, you, I want to tell people what they want to know and what they need to know. And the trick for us is how to make the asparagus look good. You put Dijon mustard on it. We haven't figured out the Dijon mustard. What we do too often is give them stories that we think is what they want, like dog stories or cute little kid stories. That's, it's not news. It's puffed. It's crap. And people know the difference. That's not what they want to know. They do want scandal and they do want sex and food and sleep and all the basic needs. They want that in their stories. And we don't do a good enough job giving it to them in the stories that they need to know about, like gun violence and budgets and taxes, stories that they need to know about. We have never figured out how to tell that in the same way as we tell a Monica Lewinsky story. Well, I don't know that that's a failure of journalism as much as it is of humankind. I mean, if you look at what story draws more attention, violence against a child or against a puppy, the puppy. That's really, that's not a journalism failure. That is a failure on humanity. And you can't really quite overcome that in a newsroom. That's why we have puppy stories alongside the investigative reporting. It sounds silly. And, you know, as a reporter, you're always saying, I don't want to be sent out to do it, affect the puppy story or the parade or a nice little puff piece. But on the other hand, that is what people remember. That's what they will pay attention to. And your strong investigative stuff sometimes doesn't draw the attention much as we want it to. It doesn't have the impact that it should. 
And, and the problem is, too, people don't believe what they read in any case. Here's a new study, Zoom-based interviews that were done last year by a couple of professors asking people about to understand the relationship between the sources they turn to for their news and what they tell themselves about the news. And they found out that even the news sources that ideologically align with the individual news consumers People still don't even trust that. That is, conservatives don't believe what they hear on Fox News or on MSNBC. People are generally always skeptical. You know, Rex, every once in a while you read something in a newspaper. My colleague, David Gustino, who is also the producer of the show, brought up with me in our recent discussion the idea that what we heard about cell phones maybe 40 years ago is turning out to have some replicative value in that people are getting brain cancer who use cell phones too much. Now, there's an important thing for people to know and people to respect in terms of what their individual behavior is going to be. Is that true? I don't know if it's true. I know that Speedy Gustina, our producer, read it from the paper, and he brought it up with me. Scared the hell out of me, to be perfectly honest with you. And it proved to be true that it does It's proving to be true, according to this study, that that's the case. That is interesting. We don't do a good job on following up. I go back to the whether coronavirus came out of a lab. And we in the media were very quick, I was, very quick to dismiss it. Oh, WHO investigated, they said, no, it's fine. And the problem was because Trump was was promoting it, so we didn't look at it. Now we've had to go back. We're doing it with aliens now. Are there aliens? Even the government's looking at that, Uh, right? (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. No, (laughs) it's true. true. Well, it's very interesting that if you're a journalist, you should be always curious (laughs) And never discount anything, no matter how outlandish. In fact, how many Pulitzer Prizes came from some weirdo walks into a newsroom, manages to get one reporter to listen to him and take him seriously, and it turns out to be true. So skepticism is a barrier to good news, and this is one that probably should go back. Although, even if there's a definite proof between using a cell phone and getting cancer, people still use cell phones, just like we know that if you get coronavirus, you can die, but get a vaccine and you probably won't, and they still don't get it. So it's not like the media will definitely affect behavior, but we should be open to reporting about all of it. Well, I really liked your point about, you know, the aliens, Rosemary, because (laughs) gaba, gaba, gaba. This Zoom study by the professors paints a picture of the news consumer, this mistrustful news consumer, as someone who's actively Googling the facts as they're watching the news. I just find yeah. it very hard to believe yeah. that, that people are doing that. I think maybe these professors Zoomed in with 60 of their professorial friends. Uh, well, it's true. It's not a scientific study, is it? It's, it's basically anecdotal. The 60 sample and an anecdotal thing is big for anecdotal but small for study. So it's, it's perhaps not useful. You know, I've always been haunted by the stories that we didn't do. And I've thought about so many times, you know, as a a newspaper editor, you get these letters from inmates. uh, And every inmate, of course, is not guilty. Every prisoner who writes to you didn't commit the crimes that they're in for. However, some are not guilty. Some of them, in fact, are not guilty. (laughs) And, you know, you can't look into all of them. So I would guess so that I wouldn't look at any of them because I got a letter almost every day from the state prison system. And what can you do? There are lots of custody battles, too, we never get into because then you get into a morass of he said, she said. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I'm haunted by a white-collar worker who was sent to jail, to prison in Florida when I was working 
working there, and he began writing and saying, look, at, you know, let me tell you about what's going on here. I really wanted to do this story. My editor said, no, we can't trust him. He's a felon, blah, blah, blah. So we uh, never did the story. Those do haunt you. Yeah. yeah, I'm haunted by the man who came to me who was alleging that a priest had abused him as a, chi- as a child. And I just, this was back in the late 70s. I just, yeah. I, I dismissed it. Why did you dismiss it? I'm not being accusatory um, here. I'm just asking uh, a question. I, I thought it was outside the realm of possibility. Did it have anything to do with your religious upbringing? No, I, I wasn't. Ca- I'm not Catholic. As a reporter, you always have a list of possible stories, impossible to get to. You'll never complete right. it. Right. And right. so you triage, and that's what you did. Said, oh, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to spend yeah, time on right. it. Right. And I made some initial calls, and I got nowhere with it. And then you have to kind of try to judge the intensity with which the person is presenting the case. And and in this these cases, a lot of these victims were traumatized, and so right. it was difficult to deal with. So same thing, of course. Domestic violence was a story that we did didn't understand 40 years ago to be as big a deal as it is. I worked for a publisher whose wife alleged that he was beating her up, and nobody could believe it because he was a. This is not in this community. Mm-hmm. This is far away from here. Just uh, for the record. <laughs> he, yeah, just for the record. Yes, this is nobody we know, and they're all dead at this point anyway. But everybody thought she was crazy that this nice, upstanding citizen could possibly have been actually attacking his wife, and nothing ever came wow. of it. And think of those stories of that sort. And I think, Alan, your question when you ask Judy, is it your religious background? that perhaps prevented you from doing this. That's a valid question. The biases we bring, that is the experience that we all have, does tend Mm -hmm. to color what we look for, what we initially give credibility to. And as as you said, Jay, there are always more stories than you can get to. And and you've got to control for them. I mean, you know, Rosemary, my colleague to my right here, has quite frequently been assertive on the matter of how Israelis treat Arabs. Badly. Uh, See, there you go. Um, Mm -hmm. And Alan who carried a United Jewish Appeal white and blue, you know, can around and collected money. But then I get to start thinking about Netanyahu and what he's done and all the rest of it. So you've really got to control your own basic instincts when you talk about this. That, that's why the thing about Wuhan affects me so much. I wanted it not to be true uh-huh. because Trump was promoting it. I wanted it not to be true. Sure. So you look at the evidence said that it, he's wrong and it's like, wow, okay, he's a jerk. That's really dangerous. Aren't there institutions, though, that are built into the way good newsrooms function that help to mitigate that impulse that we each have? That is, multiple people passing on the idea of a story, looking over something, so that it's not Mm -hmm. just one person at the choke point. Multiple people reading a story, at least that used to be the case when there were more copy editors and, and editors around. So the bias that does creep into your writing gets corrected, gets caught by someone. There are, again, in good newsrooms, ways that we correct for these kinds of intrinsic well, biases. Well, but the, if the editor has a well-known predilection of one kind, and I'm not looking, <laughs> you think I'm looking at you, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're wrong though about the power structure. The surest way to get a story not you done you, is just, for an editor to ask for it. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> but, but, but Marty Baron, and this is captured in the movie Spotlight, changed the priest story, the child abuse story mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church, by just saying to his reporters who were looking at some specific examples, 
how this really happen? Let's look bigger. That's it, it was just a different mindset, and that's what an editor can do. Not dictate this is a story, this is not, but just ask the right questions. So you have to say, wait a minute, maybe I'm not thinking this right. But in and the that, course of this program, you have said it, others have said it. I tried to bring this up, and I was told, no, this is not a good story. You know, you guys are always fast to jump on this. Oh, well, the best way to turn off a reporter is for an editor to tell him not to do something. Right. But, but I think editors have power. Oh, they do. And in fact, if a reporter is knocking their head against the wall on a story for a year and it's not happening, at some point you say, you got to cut your losses and go cover something else, or you say it's not or, a story. Or the other way around, also, the most significant thing you can do is say, let's keep going on that. You know, I'm going to take you off your other stories. Let's do that. That, for oh, example, those I, were the days. In, <laughs> well, yeah. in my newsroom, right. when I was the editor of the Times Union, that's how we ended up doing the story about Nexium, mm -hmm. the cult that became a major series in 2012. Unfortunately, politicians and prosecutors didn't follow up until the story got into the New York Times. But that's how that became a big story because, and I had significant support from the publisher, incidentally, in that case, to do that. And sometimes, even at, when I was the editor of The Record in Troy, a little paper in the early 90s, turning what could have been a daily story into a four or five part project, saying, no, we're going to keep pursuing this. That ended up turning over City Hall in Troy and sending the head of the Troy Housing Authority at federal prison because we did devote the time to it. And if you have editors who are committed to that kind of reporting, that can make a difference, actually. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, the great John Carroll of the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Baltimore Sun was just so famous for that in this very quiet Southern gentlemanly way. He would say, well, that's a good story, a fire down in Baltimore Harbor, but how did that really happen? There's not too many fires down there. And they come back with another story. And then it was like, ah, what was on that ship again? That's very weird to me. And by asking that question every day, the reporters were more than ready to move on to something else. Yeah. But every day there would be one more question that they didn't get turned into a Pulitzer Prize winning series. Two reporters devoted to it for more than two years. Interesting conversation. This is the Media Project by the Northeast Public Radio. If you're just tuning us in, that was Rosemary Armeo. Alan Shartok is here. Judy Patrick and I'm Rex Smith. If you want to say something to us or offer your thoughts, media at wamc.org is our email address. We haven't heard a lot in email lately from folks, so please don't hesitate to let us know what's going on. Just to follow up on a story that we've had before, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was the creator of the 1619 Project in the New York Times, which re-examined slavery in the United States and talked about the impact of institutional racism throughout this country's history, 400 years worth. Nicole Hannah-Jones, now that the trustees of the University of North Carolina said, okay, we will give you tenure after all, we're sorry, she said, no. <laughs> so she's going to go instead to Howard University, the distinguished historically black university in Washington, D.C., along with Ta-Nehisi Coates. That's Quite a powerhouse impact. department, isn't it? Isn't that? Mm -hmm. That'll be very interesting. News will be coming out of Howard in the next few years. Well, what is the impact of that when you have a couple of high-profile, distinguished names in journalism now? And Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ta-Nehisi Coates, are they actually going to be great teachers? What do we think about that? You know, as a lifelong professor, I did 40 years in the trenches. I have to say, I have never believed, because somebody writes a turgid Ph.D. thesis, that that makes them really oh. what, what? Yeah, well, neither of these people wrote turgid. No, 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 PhD no, 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 Rosemary. I wasn't saying they did. Oh, okay. Uh, no, on the contrary, I was saying they are the kinds of people who ought to be in a classroom uh, because they've had that experience and because right. th they're Sorry. very valuable. And yet, I've talked with people who, frankly, 
what they write on. I could name some things that are extraordinarily boring and whatever. Limited. And yet we promote them. We promote them based on the fact that they did it the way that academics do it. So I'm a great believer in people being hired at universities who have done it. Period. End of the story. I think the star power of those two writers will bring a flood of top flight students to Howard who will go on to do more research and it will be extremely exciting. And I think this is horrible news for UNC and for white institutions. Hannah Jones said specifically, you know, all my life I tried to fit into white institutions that didn't want me. Now I'm going to go someplace where I'm comfortable. So we're back to separate but better than equal. That's not good for, for the white part of our country. And we should be ashamed. Right. It's really an illuminating series of events in 2021 that this actually happened. And it really does shine a light on the university system. We, I've always suspected that it's very political. The other thing that's really interesting... It's economic also, by the way, because the big anti-movement for giving her tenure came from a guy with a lot of money. Who right, and you know, the school is named after him. The yeah. School of Journalism yeah. is named I think after it's him. important, and that's why one of the reasons I think it's important for nonprofits to disclose who their big donors are, because in this case, this helped us understand what was happening. I know that you don't have to disclose who your big donors are, and in fact, one anonymous $5 million donor to Howard University is helping finance this new collaborative uh, at you. Journalism School. We don't know who that is. Well, I thought you would bring this up, Judy, but one of the reasons the story developed as it did was that Hannah Jones worked with a local reporter. Oh, exactly. When the story went national, she never switched. She kept talking to this one guy. So there's this depth of understanding and access that you did not get anyplace else. It was a, a deeply, richly reported story, local news. Right. Interestingly, by the way, local news from a nonprofit newsroom called NC Policy Watch. This guy's name is Joe Killian, and he had worked for the uh, Greensboro paper, the News and Record, for many years, for 10 years, and then switched over to this not-for-profit newsroom. And this underscores why there is value in these not-for-profit newsrooms. They are able to do the kind of reporting that used to be done by a lot of big newsrooms. And now with the downturn in commercial support for legacy media, it falls on these shoulders, and thank goodness there are great reporters out there doing that kind of thing. And I know how this sounds, but one of the reasons that WAMC is now the most listened to radio station, it's the one we're broadcasting from now, in the entire region, is because uh, of the resources that people have given us to do our work. It didn't used to exist that way. We were 13 the last time I looked, and all of a sudden we're number one. Amazing. Let's hear it. All right. With that little bit of good news, that's where we started good news. And here we are back to good news, this time about WAMC, where we are grateful to be. We thank you all for listening to Media Project. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. With thanks to our producer, David Gustina, and to you all for joining us this week once again on The Media Project. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspaper men are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage. Tingling-ling newspaper guild got a free new world of... The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and adjunct professor at the University at Albany. 
You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising. Get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.